You know that uh, we've been doing this a long time. When my wife comes into the studio just before we're about to start, and she says, can I get you your drink? <laughs> as as I was shaking my martini, a wifey turns to me and says, you drink too much. <laughs> I'm like, what? I, I, I know. It's Listen, to do this podcast, I need a little bit of lubrication. It's one drink, and today it's just plain old rum and coke, cockspur and old sugary coke and it's it's not that big a deal really that's exactly the way i operate I, I probably have maybe one or two beverages of this nature a week me too yes is that considered a lot i don't think so i mean i had a nurse come into the house the other day i have to get some life insurance so i had to go through the whole health rigmarole and she asked how much i, I had to drink on a given week and i said well uh standard standard week maybe you know, three to five drinks. If I go out, maybe there'll be two glasses of wine on top of that. But other than that, I'm I'm a pretty you know, moderate kind of guy. And yet my wife comes in when she knows I'm sitting down to talk to you and says, can I get you your drink, honey? Uh, maybe we need your wife to talk to my wife because she won't lift a martini shaker for the life of her. Well, my wife wouldn't make a martini either because she's afraid that she wouldn't make it strong enough, which is probably right. Meanwhile, I am having this rum and coke, which is a little uh, light on the rum. It's uh, episode 69 of this season. <laughs> there, I saw, great, I saw a great poster the other day that said 69% of people see sex in everything. <laughs> All right, you ready for the big show? Let's go. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect those of their employers or Ron Jeremy. Can I tell you a Ron Jeremy story? You got a Ron Jeremy story? I do. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The history of porn music and why the Fifty Shades of Grey film may be relegated to the dustbin of dirty movie history. Six high-tech movie facilities that make no sense even if you think you can hit a womp rat in your T-16 back home. Well, here we go again. Boycotting Led Zeppelin. Why the Thieving Band deserves our respect now that it's performed its fiscal penance. Where do accents go when people sing? The answer might surprise you. Plus, a GNB update on our Live on Location show. And what's next for the Foo Fighters, too? Why are we always talking about Foo Fighters? And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Wait, wait a minute. You, you, you've got a story about a porn star whose nickname is the Hedgehog, and there's a connection to your wife? Uh, many years ago, there was a very academic documentary on human sexuality with Dr. Alex Comfort called The Sexiest Animal. And my wife was called upon to narrate said documentary. In the doc is a section on adult entertainment. And one of the people interviewed talking about the need and the demand for adult entertainment was Ron Jeremy. Fine. 
So the joke had been since 1987 that my wife was in a film with Ron Jeremy. (laughs) Many years later, Ron Jeremy is on a book tour and he comes into the radio station. He appears all, you know, hedgehoggy and had food stains down the front of his shirt. And he's signing copies of his book. So I sat down next to him. I said, uh, Ron, my wife was in a movie with you. (laughs) And (laughs) And he looked at me. Dead serious and said, did I do her? <laughs> what did anybody else have to say at that precise moment? Well, I mean, everybody, there was there was that pause and then everybody broke out laughing. And then he signed the book uh, to Mary Ellen. Nice working with you at Ron Jeremy. <laughs> oh, that's even better. I know. <laughs> Which brings us to the top story on a journal of musical dot com and the Geeks and Beats website this week. You've written up a history of porn music. Salon is a very good magazine for this sort of uh, pop culture stuff, and they've gone back in history to the 1970s, really, when uh, porn became more mainstream than it had been up until that point. And everybody wants to know where that whole waka waka chicka waka waka chicka sort of music came from. Oh, yeah. You, You say the word porn, and that's the first thing people will do. Yeah, exactly. And this has to do with that uh, that wah-wah pedal guitar that a lot of porn soundtracks seem to rely on. If you go back to the early 70s, I mean, it's not, it wasn't just porn. I mean, we, we, if you go back to some of those black exploitation films in the early part of the 70s, like, like Shaft. You know, if you listen to the theme from Shaft with Isaac Hayes, you've got that waka waka kind of guitar. So that became, for whatever reason... The, the soundtrack to a lot of those early on-film, in-theater, high-quality porn films, or high-quality at least compared to what had come before. I mean, think about Deep Throat. Pornography hit mainstream in the 70s, and at the time, the wah-wah pedal and all of that, that was popular. And so what you had was uh, pornographic directors, adult film directors, trying to co-opt popular culture of the day so that the films seemed like regular run-of-the-mill everything, with the exception of instead of fading to black or pushing into the curtains as the couple lay down on the bed, the music would crescendo and you would stay with them. So I suppose we have that sense, even through the 80s, 90s, and into today, that nothing epitomizes pornography quite like the bow-chicka-wow-wow. Yeah, see, those films were watershed moments in the history of porn. And at the time, you're right. I mean, we had uh, Isaac Hayes and Shaft, uh, where the memories of Jimi Hendrix were still in everybody's mind. And the idea of of using that kind of guitar, which was very popular, which was the thing, which was cutting edge, uh, that was in an effort to give these films a real, quote unquote, soundtrack, not some sort of, you know, cheesy old stuff. But because this was such a watershed moment, because everybody remembers those films, that music became stereotyped with that genre of uh, entertainment. There is a, an entire series of modern day CDs you can buy. Oh yeah, I have a couple called Porno Sonic. Hi, this is Ron Jeremy. You're listening to Porno Sonic. Uh, I don't know if I have that series. 
but I've I've got I've got some, and it's it's yeah, a lot of this stuff. It's got Ron Jeremy on the front cover, and uh, it ended up in a radio station at which I was working at the time, and this was you know maybe ten years ago or so, maybe more. Uh, and I said, hey, you know, that, that looks like a cool CD. And I, and I took it home. And, of course, Ron Jeremy's on the cover. He does a little bit of the narration of it. I did a blog review of the whole thing. And the guy actually emailed me. He said, hey, I'm, I'm coming up with a sequel. Would, would you like me to send it to you as well? He never ended up doing so. But it was all very uh, stereotypical 70s porn, right down to the, to the names of the tracks, like Cramming for College, <laughs> Laying Pipe. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Who is it? It's the plumber. Plumber? I didn't call a plumber. What, are you done with this topic? No, I'm, I'm finished. What else is there to say? Well, actually, we could come full circle to the current day and Geeks and Beasts writer Matt Padani is uh, looking at... Have I met Matt? Wait, have I met Matt? You have yet to meet Matt. How Okay. Maybe on, at the live on location on. show we'll talk. We'll talk about that. I just... You you come to my my summer garden party. You'll meet Matt. I can't. I'm in I'm, I'm in Edmonton. No no no. It's Saturday. Yeah, I'm in Edmonton on my way to on my way to Vancouver that weekend. All right. Well then I'm not inviting you. Well don't because I won't be there. He puts a, a piece together on Fifty Shades of WTF. Uh, According to the Hollywood Reporter, domestic box office receipts are on pace for their worst showing in eight years. Not a single film has breached the three hundred million dollar mark domestically, and so there's a lot of attention being put on Fifty Shades of Grey to get over that hump. To what do you owe your success? I exercise control in all things, Miss Steele. It must be really boring. Well, they need something because all the action's in television right now. Premium cable. When I see a review of a film like Guardians of the Galaxy, it looks like a great film. And I'll wait until I, I, will I go see it in the theater? No, I'll wait until it comes out on demand and watch it there. Yeah, but that's because you're old. Uh, my demographic used to power box offices, especially in the fourth quarter of every year. But you're not the demographic anymore. You're in your 50s now. It, it, this was the case when you were in your 20s and 30s, tops. This is true, especially for summer films. Right. But uh, people, you know, there's a new Brad Pitt film called Fury that's coming out in the fall, which is about World War II that I really want to see. I might go see that in the theater. But for anything other than the serious, serious films... Not interested. And they can push Fifty Shades all they want. My wife is the greatest hater of that series of books. Yeah, but that's because she writes her own adult erotica. Well, I, but no, it's because it's terrible. Nobody should buy the Fifty Shades of Grey series because it's awful writing. It's misogynist. It's horrible. It's just terrible. Yeah, wifey uh, got through the first book, started to read the second, and after complaining about how bad the first was, I said, why are you reading the second? She said, I feel obligated. And then <laughs> she, she was committed by about the third paragraph just to complete the whole thing. And then she got to the end of the second book. And I think there's three, are there not? There is. Yeah, and so she, is. she felt obligated to go to the Amazon.com, buy herself the third oh, book. See, this is the problem. This is, this is why E.L. James made all that money. Your wife is part of the problem. She read something that was crappy and against her will. Well, she's, she's, you know what? She's, oh, I won't say it, but anyway. Isn't against your will sort of part of the whole Fifty Shades of Grey? Well, yeah, she fell for it. She fell for it. 
The thing is, as Matt points out, the Fifty Shades trailer has more first week views than Transformers or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So you could use the trailer views as an indicator of the actual success of the film once it comes out. Guess how many, and don't you dare look. I just did. 21 million? 21 million, 473,791. Oh, okay, I'm just going to mute this and I'm going to just let it run. Oh, this is the global trailer. Oh, I, I. So he's uh, he's got a a poll that he's added to the bottom of his articles. If you go to geeksandbeats.com, we'd love to know what you think, uh, because he asks, "What blockbuster do you want to see the most in 2015?" Okay, I just voted James Bond 24. You just voted for James Bond 24. Yeah, as did 23 percent of respondents, but 54 percent, the vast majority, want to see Star Wars Episode Seven. Yeah, whatever. Enjoy. You guys go ahead. Yeah. So James Bond 24 is not too far behind. What What's the 24 reference mean? Uh, they haven't got a title yet. Oh, oh, it's just the 24th film. Yeah, that's what they're going with. Gotcha. Followed by Avengers Age of Ultron. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. No, neither do I. And uh, Assassin's Creed, which I always thought was a video game. It is a video game. They've run out of... Uh, see, this, this is the problem with movies right now. They're appealing to everybody that's under the age of 25. And it's all this, uh, you know, Michael Bay, boom, bang, explosion stuff. Now, are you watching this trailer as you said you would? I'm, they're in the elevator now. I have to tell you, though, Mr. Gray himself, meh. He's creepy. I think, yes, I think he's got creepy face. Well, again, he's a creepy character. No, no, no. Well, as I understand it, and I haven't read it myself, but Fifty Shades, he's supposed to be, uh, yes, a very dominating character, but not a creepy dominating character. There's a big difference between creepy, don't touch me, and sexy, yes, tie me up, whip, whip me, beat me, make me write bad checks. Like He looks a little psychotic here, actually. Okay, so I'm going to add another uh, poll here to the Geeks and Beats website. Are these two really the people you pictured in your mind when you thought of Fifty Shades of Grey? No. I didn't think so either. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've jumped the poll, <laughs> yes. haven't I? You're, you're influencing the poll. This is a really unsexy trailer, too. It's very unsexy, which I suppose shouldn't surprise me. Maybe the Red Band trailer would be a little more uh, risque. The what trailer? Have you ever heard of uh, different trailers having different codes? Like the Red Band trailer, when you watch a movie trailer... Oh, Danny Elfman did the music for this! Yes, yes, oh, he did. The guy who did the theme for The Simpsons did the theme. Oh. Yes, okay, so now while you're watching this, think of Marge and Homer. I am already. That's why I just took a drink. Oh, man. Oh. All right. I've completely lost my train of thought. Are you talking about the red, oh, right, the uh, red, band, red band trailers? Trailer? Uh, so when you watch this trailer, is approved for all audiences. The background's green, correct? Uh,. Yeah. Now, a red band trailer is only approved to be shown in theaters where the audience is comprised of adults. So, uh, restricted movies, rated R films, may have a red band trailer. Okay, I see one here. Hang on. This is for dark space. They're usually more violent. They're usually more sexually suggestive. This is not the red band trailer you're looking at. No, no. I'm looking at something else now. Uh, premature. Oh, so now, now you've just gone down a crazy rabbit well, hole. Well, this is a big rat hole here, but I, I've, I've never heard of this red band trailer thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. 
Oh, approved for appropriate audiences, and then it's on a, a red background. Okay. So whenever you're looking up a movie trailer and you really want to see the good stuff, make sure you add red band to your search. See, this is... Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I see why this is a red band trailer. See? Okay. <laughs> All right. Crack.com, speaking of movies, has put together this uh, compilation, Six High-Tech Movie Facilities That Make No Sense. All right, let's look. See what you got here. I haven't seen this yet. Uh, oh, the Death Star. Okay, let me, let's let's go through this. All right. All right. Well, let's let's work our way up to the Death Star because that's the only one that I'm really interested in. Um, number th uh, one on that list of all of them, RoboCop. The headquarters. The problem is that the company responsible has their headquarters in a futuristic skyscraper. How the hell did they get the ED-209, the murder bot, up into the boardroom in the first place? We're talking about the original. The original Robocop. Yeah, OCP headquarters. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it talks about, in Star Trek, Nero's ship. Did you see the J.J. Abrams reboot Star Trek? Of course. Okay. Uh, yeah, that ship did, never made any sense. Uh, the, but the ship that, that really annoyed me more than anybody else's is, um, yeah, it, it's Spock's ship, the little thing that buzzes like a fly, like a mosquito. I hated that thing. Elysium was on that list as well, um, number three. Uh, Elysium is, is uh, the Matt Damon, Jodie Foster film where the elite live in orbit high above a destroyed Earth. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know what? It's uh, it's a space station uh, that's reminiscent of the space station in 2001. Space Odyssey, Odyssey but um, yeah, okay, fine. It's goofy. The Nostromo in Alien. Okay, I disagree with this one, although it's probably just because I don't understand. I need the schematics. You know, one of the things that was really cool growing up, okay, is that you could go to the bookstore. Coles used to have these and was the blueprints of the Starship Enterprise. Yeah. And that... I, I bought that once. It, it made the, the series make a lot more sense because you know where the bridge was. You knew where the photon torpedoes were stored. You knew where engineering was. You knew where Deck 10 was. And and all of a sudden, it all made, made perfect, perfect sense. So if we had the schematics for the Nostromo, which you have to understand is, a, is, is essentially a tug towing a refinery. Yes. Okay. So the refinery is going to be, well, it's going to look like a big refinery, right? But as for um, the Nostromo itself, I'm not really sure why you would have such a, a moist um, subterranean the tunnels and all that. Yeah, that, that's a bit weird. But listen, it's in the ba it's in the base of a of a a large interstellar uh, refinery. So bah, I don't care. I'm good with that. <laughs> The author points out, why is there water leaking everywhere? Literally every section of the ship is perpetually moist. Yeah, it's true. Uh, number five is the f uh, the prison in Face Off. I uh, don't remember that, but uh, it's a Nicolas Cage, John Travolta film, so that explains why I don't remember that. Uh, but the biggest one, of course, is the Death Star, pointing out that it's at least the size of a moon. We know this because they literally mistake it for one. Mm. Um, but the, what are the odds of a space garage of this size, first of all? But as far as the physical size of the thing, it's absolutely massive. H how would you get from point A to point B? The circumference of the Earth's moon is 6,783 miles. And the Death Star is literally twice that size. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. And if you want to destroy it, all you have to do is send one missile down a one foot by one foot hole and the whole thing blows up. It would take 13 hours to get from one side to the other, even if the turbo lifts were moving as fast as a commercial jet at 500 miles per hour. Yeah, Death Star, stupid, which is why Star Wars means nothing to me. And yet they reach, whoa, 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 back up. What'd you just say? I, I don't like Star Wars. I'm a Star Trek guy. 
Star Trek's a lot nerdier than Star Wars, don't you think? It is a lot nerdier than Star Wars, which is why I like it. All right. Okay, then let's get all nerdy here for you, because Mashable.com's got this fabulous piece on breaking the laws of physics to get to Mars. Is this the new engine that NASA has developed? That's right. It's the M-Drive. Yeah, that sounds like, it sounds like something on my network. It's not something that NASA came up with. It was an experimental engine that was introduced by someone unrelated to NASA. NASA, however, took the blueprints, built their own, and confirmed that, in fact, despite the fact that it's basically breaking the laws of physics, it actually seems to work. People said for the longest time that this inventor who came up with it said that, uh, no, you're flawed, your measurements are wrong, you're observing it incorrectly, it cannot work because it violates... Uh, the laws of uh, the conservation of momentum. Yeah, there you go. The idea being is that if you take, for example, a, a fire hose and you turn on the water, the water is going to go forward, you're going to go backwards. Right. But the way um, this M-Drive works is it converts solar energy into electricity, first of all, so you don't have to worry about bringing onboard propellant. Uh, and uh, what it does, by and large, and I don't completely admit to understanding it. Well, let me read it for you. Okay. It's a force that's not attributable to any classical electromagnetic phenomenon and therefore potentially demonstrating an interaction with the quantum vacuum virtual plasma. Yes. No idea what that means other than it creates some kind of imbalance which results in propulsion. It uses electricity to generate microwaves. They bounce around in a closed space and then barf out the back and that's what creates the thrust. That's what I said. <laughs> Yes. So, now, the thing is, is it doesn't do that very quickly. Or, or it doesn't have a lot of thrust either. This would be good for, um, uh, one of the things I saw it would be good for would be satellites, who, which, which have to take huge amounts of fuel up with them just for repositioning purposes. Right. So this would work for Mars because of the distance and the, cumu the accumulation of the speed that you would get over time. So the momentum, as that increases, that propels you. Instead of it taking months to get to Mars, they figure it could only take weeks. Well, then you have to slow down, which is a problem. <laughs> but this is this is the same sort of principle. No, it's not. But I, this is the same thing that they were talking about with the solar sail. Yes. So you deploy this giant sail that's many, many, many square kilometers in area. It picks up the solar wind, and that becomes your propulsion. But then you have to bring the sail in. Uh, turn around and use it as a brake. The M-Drive's uh, engine inventor was uh, Roger Shaywer and his company is SPR, and they've been working for more than a decade on this. And they got a, a ton of flack over the claims that they made. But now that NASA has built one themselves, they figure, okay, maybe there is something to this. Yeah. Well, you see, it's it's that, that would be really cool. But again, it's not so much the speed getting up to an appropriate speed. It's slowing down because... Uh, you know, how, how do you stop? This is this is one of the problems that ha people have with warp drive if, because the amount of, of energy that would re be required to slow something down from faster than light speed is uh, beyond infinite. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I, Mr. Star Trek nerd, warp drive as I understand it is not about speed. It's actually about bending space-time. No, I understand. Therefore, I it's understand. Not, you're not actually worrying about hitting the brakes. No, you're, you're not. But in some interpretations of warp drive. In some interpretations. I'm not going to make you look You foolish. accused Just... me of being comic book guy last week. Oh, I've wasted my life. Look, there's one thing to be comic book guy. There's another thing to be a, a physics guy. I am a physics guy. Trust me on this. There are some problems with warp drive that are probably too big for your little mind. 
Some. Some problems. <laughs> All right. You're, how about we talk about something you actually know about? Uh, <laughs> instead of some sort of theoretical propulsion system that takes people uh, at faster light speeds? Okay. Time now for Ask Alan Anything. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan Anything. Call 323-319-NERD. Hey guys, Brad Owens calling from Omimi, Ontario. And uh, no wonder you guys are the most popular podcast on iTunes, because your show rocks. And uh, this time I have a question for you, uh, more of a personal nature. I'm wondering if you think I'm being overly sensitive um, about the fact that uh, I have decided to absolutely boycott Led Zeppelin. Uh, Alan made a comment uh, a week or so back that uh, that he had a lot of respect for Led Zeppelin, and so do I, uh, from the standpoint that they're great musicians and so on. But as you begin to hear all the various uh, songs that they have essentially stolen from other people, you realize that maybe they weren't quite quite the creative geniuses that we all thought that they were. You know, Stairway to Heaven is uh, some other band's song, and they stole a bunch of stuff virtually note for note from old blues musicians and so on. And uh, so as a result, I will not go to a Jason Bonham concert. I won't have anything to do with Led Zeppelin and so on. But maybe I'm being overly sensitive. Yes, you you are. Anyway, great show, guys. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Oh, here we go again. All right, fine. Led Zeppelin has paid for these sins. How have they paid for these sins? (laughs) They've, They've been sued and they've had to settle out of court. Okay, so does that then make it okay to listen to the music they stole because they've now paid for it? Well, if you read anything that Jimmy Page says right now, it's it's he says that it was anything that they did was as an homage to these blues masters that they so adored. Uh, and they have paid for this adoration. So listen to those songs now, knowing that every time you buy a copy or every time a copy uh, of one of these songs is played on the radio... Uh, that the person responsible for the the Genesis DNA is being compensated or their estate is being compensated. So you're willing to overlook the fact that they initially stole it, thought they'd get away with it. And they were caught and then they paid and then let's move on. Okay. Paid their debt to musical society as the case may be. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this this was a fairly, I don't want to, this is a fairly common thing at a, at a certain point in um in musical history, and it took a long time for people to step up and say, this is wrong, uh, you can continue to do it, but it's going to cost you, which is what happened to Led Zeppelin. Let's just forget it, move on. It's uh, The sins have been atoned for. If you've got a question for Ask Alan Anything, call 323-319-NERD. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. I had a girlfriend once who would sing. No, really? <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, yeah, believe it or not, I was just as surprised <laughs> as you. Uh, who uh, who would used to sing with a British accent. Yeah, there She was not British. Uh, oh. oh. <laughs> but she sang with a British accent. And I always that, that after a while it started to drive me nuts. You knew the relationship was was towards its end when the littlest of things started to drive you crazy that you once found. Was this on purpose or is this just how it came out? I think she just she just thought that was a a, a nice way to sing it sounded good. I don't know. 
But uh, you are uh, looking at the prospect of people's accents and where they go or where they don't when they sing. Yeah, this has always been an interesting sort of topic for me. Um, I've talked to, for example, Noel Gallagher many times. Did you understand a word he had to say? Mm, very little. I've had to have him <laughs> repeat himself <laughs> more than once. I had a conversation with Liam Gallagher, which I might as well have been talking to somebody who spoke Swahili with a lisp. Um and I've, I've talked to a few other people from places like Scotland where it's just like, uh-uh, <laughs> I have no idea what you're saying, dude. But uh, but when these people sing, they the, the accent seems to disappear. And a lot of people want to know why singing seems to negate any kind of accents. And the short answer is that singing prevents you from stressing certain syllables. These, these syllables are called the super segmentals. And uh, what happens is the rhythm of song of, often limits your ability to pronounce words, especially vowels, in the way that you would when you're speaking normally. So singing kind of smooths everything out and becomes this universal translator for uh, pronunciation of certain words. Now, there, this doesn't mean that people don't sing with accents on occasion. They do. Um, you think about um, the proclaimers. But You think about the Proclaimers, but at least have you ever talked to uh, the Reed Brothers? No, I have not. Oh, it's it's almost impenetrable. However, you can understand what they're singing when they sing 500 Miles. Um, Elton John, for example, famously, I mean, this is probably the first time I ever noticed it. Uh, Benny and the Jets, when he talks about killing the fatted cough tonight, so stick around. What, what's a cough? Oh, it's a calf. Ah. There were certain things that, uh, that, that slipped through. What about the other side of it, though, where you had a lot of British musicians during the sort of the, the, the British invasion period coming to the United States and singing with an American accent deliberately? Yeah, well, they thought that that would be the way to break through in the American market. You have to remember that in the 1960s, the the only market in the world that mattered for pop and rock was the United States. So a lot of guys, a lot of women came across the pond thinking, well, if I want to make it in America, I got to sing like a yank. So they worked very hard to suppress their accents, especially the regional accents, the northern ones, the Scottish ones, the Cockney ones. Um, and, and they did very well. But but they didn't ha they didn't probably found that they didn't have to really work that hard at it simply because uh, of the physics involved in singing and what it does to the way you pronounce your words. And at the same time, I had no idea that the country music star Keith Urban was actually Australian. Yeah, yeah. So you listen to him sing. Now, I would imagine somebody that is of uh, Keith Urban's uh, stature and married to Nicole Kidman. Um, who also has an accent, that they've got coaches to help them on that sort of stuff. But it does, doesn't it sound phony when, when you know that the guy's got an Australian accent, yet well, he's singing as though he has a Southern American twang? Well, you have to. That's country music. He has to sing in that style because, you know, what's the... Okay, for example, what is the most favorite form of music in Ireland? Um... <laughs> tell you country music is it really yeah can you imagine somebody singing um 
like a Tom T. Hall or Marty Robbins song uh, in an Irish accent. It just wouldn't work. So sometimes you do have to mimic the accent to make the song work properly. Just like if you were singing some of the stuff from My Fair Lady, you would have to have that Cockney accent in there. Otherwise, it would make no sense whatsoever. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We've got a new co-producer on the big show. Oh, nice. Dave Duva, thank you so much for uh, opening your wallet wide. Uh, he uh, paid 25 bucks for the uh, benefit of being able to claim that not only is he a producer on the big show, but it's something he can put on his resume as well. I have to get my wife to make a contribution. Why would he have to get your wife to make a contribution? Well, so she can put it on her resume so she can get a job. Oh, right. She is uh, currently unemployed. Yes. Yeah, the big purge in broadcasting continues. Yes. I thought uh, she was uh, meeting up with the folks at uh, your former station, 1010. No, they're, they're, there's, there's stuff on stuff on the plate. Stuff on the plate. Iron, iron's in the fire. Iron's in the fire, yes. We'll, uh, we'll ah. sort it out. Don't you worry. Well, she can spend 25 bucks as well, so she can put this on her resume. Not only that, but uh, she, as Dave will as well, uh, get a high-resolution copy of the art for this week's album cover, which you can, uh, of course, print off and frame and hang in your mother's basement. Yes, it looks very good. Yes. Um, so on top of that, it looks like we may very well have a location for our live on location show. Okay. So this email just came in. Let me have a look at it here. I'm uh, just looking at it too. I, uh, I I like the idea if, if you're asking me. So Lanrick Bennett Jr., great name for a NASCAR driver, by the way. No kidding. Uh, says that uh, in addition to being a big fan of the show, particularly of you, he, he says that, uh, Michael, truthfully, I only found out about you through Amber Mack's show. Um, and uh, minor correction, it was my show. <laughs> With Amber Mack. I brought Amber <laughs> Mack into that show. And now she went on to be this giant podcasting genius. Well, admittedly, she was doing all of that stuff long before I brought her onto the App Central show. So Lanrick says that uh, starting uh, in uh, mid-September through to the 30th of October, he's got himself a, a new music series he's working on, and he's got a, a venue for it as well, and that maybe it would be cool if we did our live on location show in advance of that, and then afterwards, of course, stay around for the live concert. They've got a bar, of course. Well, that, okay. All of a sudden, we're interested. Suddenly, well, apparently, you and I being the big live that our wives yeah. think we are, this is probably a good idea. Okay. So what's stopping us from doing this? Uh, I, we just have to punch in the uh, email reply and, and say, yes, let's make this happen. A uh, Thursday evening from 7.30 to 9.30. That would be the date. Between the 11th of September and the 30th of October. So let's get in touch with them, see if this works out. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. I wonder if I wonder how many people he expects us to draw. We have enough people listening to this show every week to fill Massey Hall. Uh, this is true. This is true. So okay. he might want to get out some extra folding chairs. All right. And and by the way, I I do have a new gig with a new radio station. So you think you might m mention that? I could co-opt it somehow. That, might that be would be possible. very cool. So that's our second Geeks and Beats update. Uh, third one is uh, courtesy of uh, GMB uh, contributor Matthew Smith. He is updating us on uh, the goings-on of the Foo Fighters. It turns out this uh, show, I think it was about three episodes in a row now we've talked about uh, them fighting Foo. Yes. Apparently, music producer Butch Vig has confirmed the band has finished its latest record. Yeah, and uh, I know a little bit about the band's management company. It's called Silver Artist Management. They're based in Hollywood. 
Um, they're very, very good, very powerful, uh, very innovative artist management company. And uh, Dave, being Dave, wants to do things bigger, better, more differently than, than, than anybody's ever done it before. And because he's got the clout and the support system to be able to do it. So he's got this new album coming out, which we, we don't know what it's called yet. But it's coming out on November the 4th, I think. And to create this record, what they did, what the band did, was travel from city to city across the U.S. I think there's eight places that they went, uh, recording in the iconic studios of those particular cities. And those are the songs that will end up on the album. As they were doing this, Dave Grohl filmed it all, and it's going to become an HBO series called Sonic Highways. And Sonic Highways is going to debut in uh, October on HBO, and that's where we're going to hear and see the first single from the album. I didn't know this. Matt writes at the end that when uh, Vig is not producing albums, in his spare time he plays drums and percussion for Garbage. Oh, God. Really, Michael? Really? What? Do we have to sit down and go through this again? Dude, I'm new to this. Remember, <sighs> you're the beats, I'm the geeks. Yeah, right, all right, all right. I'm, I'm the one explaining Warp Drive to you. Yes. Catch all <laughs> new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.